0: I'm Bob Schieffer. And I'm Andrew Schwartz. And these are conversations about the news. We are in the midst of a communications revolution. We have access to more information than any people in history. But are we more informed or just overwhelmed by so much information we can't process it? These
1: conversations are a year-long collaboration of the Bob Schieffer College of Communication at Texas Christian University and the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington.
0: Today we welcome back to the broadcast David Sanger, the New York Times correspondent, who is our first return guest. David, thank you so much for finding the time to join us. You have been busy. Uh, we're talking and doing this podcast as the report that you and your fellow Times reporter Scott Shane and Eric Lipton put together on the Russian hack into the Democratic National Committee files. It's the talk of Washington. Some people are now calling this hack the new 9-11. It's a long report. It began on page one of the December 14th edition, covers four full inside pages. Uh, It's the longest report I can recall since the Times published the Pentagon Papers, and it is an eye-opener from the very first sentence. To summarize the first part of this article, when DNC officials got the first calls from the FBI, they referred them to the committee's computer help desk. The staffer there made a cursory check but took no other action because If I'm reading your story correctly, he wasn't sure if the caller was a real FBI agent or just is an imposter. I find this absolutely unbelievable. Take, Take us through this thing. What happened? Well, sure, Bob. Well, first of all, thanks for
2: having me back. I I guess that makes me either the first return guest or a recidivist. I'm not sure (laughs) which, but one one of the two.
1: Um, You beat Maureen. Your podcast that we did with you is the highest rated of all the Bob Schieffers About the News podcast. So you're number one.
2: Maureen was number two. Just make me a deal. Don't tell Maureen, will you? Promise. Okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) So um, this story goes into the department of you can't make it up. And what we were trying to do was at a moment that we've got a president-elect who was for a while denying that this set of events happened and has continued to say if it happened, we have no way of knowing if it's the Russians, um, as if you had to be standing in front of the bank as the bank was being robbed in order to know who, who did it. What we wanted to do was lay out the tale so that everybody is working from a common fact base here. I realize facts are out of fashion in Washington these days, but we thought there was some utility. So this starts with the FBI and uh, the Department of Homeland Security um, receiving some information that suggests that, in fact, the DNC had been hacked by a Russian group affiliated with the FSB. This is the... um, the successor to the KGB in the Soviet uh, era. This is the same group that went after the State Department, the White House, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, a lot of think tanks in town, probably including this one. Uh, No comment. Yeah. and uh, So they're pretty well-known, and their patterns are pretty well-known. So they call in. And, yeah, it's like you call him with your—you're trying to call Dell or or, uh, somebody with your—and you get referred to the help desk. They get this young guy who's a tech support character for the DNC. He doesn't actually believe this is a a FBI special agent calling him. He takes a cursory look. The FBI agent calls back a few times, but he's still dealing with these uh, folks who do not, believe it or not, alert the leadership
0: of the dnc
2: that there's a problem here well did they actually For seven
0: talk- months <laughs> did they ever actually talk to the fbi agent or were they just listening to his voicemails that they, he would they
2: did they did talk to him um now there's some fault on the part of the fbi here first of all we're not talking about learning about some ordinary company that has gotten hacked here. We're talking about the DNC in the middle of a presidential election. And they all knew about the presidential election at the FBI headquarters because it was in all the papers, right? Um, so secondly, it's not like they're talking to a group that's out in the middle of the woods somewhere. If they, if the FBI agents had wanted to go take a coffee break, they could have, like, walked up the street Stopped and gotten their Starbucks and kept on a few more blocks, and they'd be at the DNC headquarters. But they never showed up in person. No. Seven long months. What happened during those seven long months? The FSB cleaned out a good deal of the DNC's computer systems, did their espionage, and then another group came in, a competing Russian intelligence group that is linked to the GRU, the the Military Intelligence Unit. And they ended up being the ones who stole the material that ultimately got posted on WikiLeaks. And they got caught. But the first group only got caught in retrospect. right? And you could have stopped all of this if the, if, uh, the DNC had reacted more. The levels of incompetence here are sort of hard to imagine. But also remember this it's not as if this is the first time a presidential target has been the, a presidential campaign has been the target of a state actor. In 2008, the Chinese got into both the computer systems of Senator Barack Obama and Senator John McCain. And if you ask Lisa Monaco, who's the Homeland Security director at the White House, what the first time was that she ever met the people around Barack Obama, including the current uh, White House uh, chief of staff, uh, Dennis McDonough. It's when she called from the Justice Department to say, hey, the Chinese are in your system. So the DNC had no institutional memory of this.
0: Well, so when did people there finally understand? I mean, you you call this Uh, whole thing, an episode of missed signals, slow responses, and an underestimation of foreign efforts to disrupt the presidential campaign. When did it finally sink in on them at the DNC that they had a problem? When they began to see a much noisier actor, this uh, uh,
2: other group linked to the GRU, that came in in a much bigger way, And they finally raised enough alerts that they brought in a very good firm called CrowdStrike, um, run by a a former FBI agent and a Russian-born founder of, of CrowdStrike. And they came in, and in 20 minutes they took a look at this and they said, we can tell you exactly who these people are. They shut the system down, they cleaned the hard drives, wiped them clean, brought a new system up, and then wrote up a public report. Uh, about uh, what had happened here, and that came out in mid-June. And this is where, I have to say, news media, including where I work at the New York Times, sort of a bit fell down on our jobs. They leaked that first report to the Washington Post. We saw it. We thought it was important, too. And I wrote a story, but, you know, it was on, you know, A19 somewhere at the bottom of the page. And it sort of reminds you in retrospect of the first stories about the Watergate break-in, which were, you know, inside stories. By the way, you go into the basement of the DNC today, and we had this in the photograph on the front page, and there is a big old 1970s file cabinet missing a handle at the bottom that was where the Watergate burglars sort of jimmied it open, and next to it they have the little server that is uh, the Dell server about the size of a laptop that the Russians broke into.
0: Were there ever actual meetings between FBI officials and the DNC? I mean, DNC officials who counted, who were running the place? Yeah, by May or June. But like by that
2: time, they were—I mean, the first attacks on the DNC happened in the fall of 2015. So we're talking seven or eight months.
1: So, how, David, how serious is
2: this? Well, there are a couple of levels of seriousness. So for the election itself— Do I think this overturn changed the results of the election? No. I haven't, and I haven't seen any evidence from other people that it did. Um, Do I think some combination of events, which would have included um, Mr. Comey's first statements and second statements about Hillary Clinton, this set of events, Hillary Clinton's own shortcomings as a candidate, Combined, did they all feed on each other? Absolutely. So on the election result, I don't think it would have made a difference. I think Hillary Clinton probably would have lost anyway. As a matter of thinking about cyber conflict between countries, this is huge. Because we have been thinking in terms of, or most of the government has been thinking, in terms of the big cyber attack that takes down the power grid or the cell phone networks. And we know how to protect against that, but we haven't thought about how you protect against the combination of 1940s-style information warfare magnified by 2016-style internet and mobile connectivity.
1: So would we even classify this in our government as cyber war, or is this espionage?
2: It was espionage until they made the material public which started happening a few days before the Democratic National Convention, and then accelerated uh, with the release of John Podesta's emails, which coincidentally happened just a few hours after the release of the Entertainment Tonight tape in which uh, the president-elect was caught saying some fairly crude things about uh, how he grabbed women. And within hours, the John Podesta Uh, emails began uh, being in public. Is there any doubt that
0: this was the work of the Russians?
2: You have seen some conspiracy theorists come out here and say, oh, you can fake all these IP addresses, you can fake the code and this and that. But it would have to be a pretty big stretch. We have seen these groups before. They are overstretched because they're doing too many cyber attacks at one time. As a result, they're using a lot of the same toolkits that they've used in the past because they don't have time to design new ones. And as a result, we're beginning to see an accumulation of evidence. And you look at this code, and it's time-stamped for being written during office hours in Moscow. You could certainly fake that. There are notes in Cyrillic. Now, that's just on the public evidence. Now, if you talk to the NSA, you talk to the CIA, what they will tell you is they have other evidence they have not made public, which presumably is based on intercepts for human intelligence that ties this back to the Russian leadership, which is what the director of national intelligence said in his October 7th public statement on all this, that this couldn't have been done without... The approval of of the Kremlin leadership, um, we haven't seen that evidence. I am hopeful that somewhere between the White House announced investigation, which is supposed to be uh, made at least completed before President Obama leaves office on January twentieth, and the various congressional investigations,
0: that we're going to begin to see things declassified. I mean, we're we're hearing source reports uh, now that. Putin himself knew about this. I don't think there's been any doubt since the October 7th statement
2: that Putin knew about it. There was one report from one network that Putin was sort of personally in charge of it and making decisions about the release of information and all that. Maybe that's true. Nothing in my reporting suggests that's true. And it's hard to imagine the president of Russia as the tactical operator here you know he doesn't get paid the big bucks in russia to be down there deciding on the timing of information releases
0: well what from your reporting thus far can you can you make an observation or why do you think they did it well there are three levels of possibilities here that,
2: that come to mind number 1 is in europe they have gone about disrupting elections merely to cast some doubt about the integrity of the Western election systems that they believe the West sort of um, uh, uses uh, in an arrogant way to suggest that Russia's own systems are corrupt. The second possibility is that in addition to casting doubt on the integrity of the election system, they just wanted to screw it up enough that – People wouldn't believe that the system wasn't rigged. And we heard from Donald Trump during the campaign that the system was. There are some analysts, and you've seen the CIA reporting on this, who actually believe that over time this went further and became a Russian effort to hurt Hillary Clinton, against whom uh, Putin has many grudges, including her own statements about how the 2011 parliamentary election in Russia was fixed, um, and to help Trump. Now, that's an analytical conclusion, and I don't know what basis they've made that on. It's possible all three explanations are true. It's possible that the Russians, like everybody else, thought Hillary Clinton was going to win the election based on the polls and wanted to be able to cast enough doubt about the integrity of the election that they would—
0: hurt her viability as a president. Maybe, in fact, thinking that she was gonna win, sort of send a signal to her, just sort of cuff her around a little bit to let her know uh, that uh, they were not gonna be pushed around. I mean, that, that rather than, say, just trying to elect Donald Trump, they just wanted to send a couple of signals to her that uh, you gotta be, have your hands full dealing with us. There's one other possible piece of signal sending in the middle of August,
2: on a sort of shadowy website came up a, a group called the Shadow Brokers who posted some code, hard for a non-professional to read, that when you looked at was clearly the kind of code that the NSA uses to break into foreign computer systems. And it was a few years old. And they were offering to sell it, although not clear to me who they thought was going to be the buyer. And you could only buy in Bitcoin. So we'd all be looking to Andrew here to drain his pockets of, of Bitcoin for this. <laughs> okay. And one of the questions was, was this Russian? We still don't know the answer, but it looked like it was. And the second was, was this also a warning? Which was, remember, we've cleaned out code from the NSA. We've cleaned out unclassified emails from the State Department, the White House, and the Joint Chiefs push us too far, and it would be a shame if that stuff got made public too. So what are the repercussions for the Russians? Well, so far, if you're Vladimir Putin and you're sitting in Moscow, you're thinking this went pretty well. The woman who he wanted to defeat, Hillary Clinton, didn't become president. The man who did become president uh, or is now our president-elect, has first denied that the Russians were involved, then suggested it could be a 400-pound guy on his bed, then suggested it could be some guy in New Jersey, who I guess could be the same as the 400-pound guy, uh, and then uh, issued a, a tweet as we speak here today saying, well, maybe it was the Russians or someone else, but why didn't the White House make any of this public before the election? Well, as we've just gone through this chronology, the White House did. President Obama even met Putin in China in September and issued a warning to him.
1: So you mentioned before that the Times and and even the Post, because when they reported the story, it wasn't exactly front and center either. Why was this story so buried and why did it take so long to now surface?
2: Well, I think there are two levels of sort of press responsibility we have to think at here. Number one— Were we slow to understand the depths of the Russian operation here? And I think as an overall media, we were. I mean, we wrote a lot of stories about this. I think I personally wrote two dozen probably during the course of the campaign. But we had a big, raucous campaign that was full of a lot of other news. And I think it's legitimate to go back and say, did we underestimate the importance of the Russian hack? Then there's a second level of responsibility, and here I've I've really – I'm just filled with introspection but have not come to a conclusion. When we wrote stories based on the John Podesta emails, the release of Hillary Clinton's speeches to Goldman Sachs, which in the end sounded a lot like speeches I've heard her give as Secretary of State, but the ones to Goldman Sachs were more highly compensated, or – Emails from Neera Tanden talking about Hillary Clinton's limitations as a candidate. We were, on the one hand, reporting news we could not avoid reporting because these got released by WikiLeaks and we couldn't put blinders on and pretend that we didn't see this material. On the other hand, we became Vladimir Putin's amplifier to some degree because he was out here and an operation to release this data. And when media, whether it's the New York Times or CBS News or NBC or the Huffington Post repeats these, and we all repeated them, we ended up giving a megaphone to an operation that he started. And I couldn't tell you here today, and I'd be interested to hear Bob's thoughts on on this as well, that we could have avoided running those stories because everybody else had them.
0: Yes, and I think that's one of the most important things to talk about, because, I mean, I must say, I've been kind of worried about this from the very beginning. I mean, uh, people talk about, do we, do we have an obligation to publish every tweet, uh, for example, from Donald Trump? And my answer would be, you know, it's it's like a press release, and the ones that are news, you, you report them. The ones that are not news, you, you put them aside, and, and on this stuff— what are we obligated or what is our responsibility to, to report out of this? I guess in some cases, you if it is news, it seems to me that's always the first thing you have to check off. But, I mean, the fact that how did we get it, where did it come from, I think these are questions we all have to start giving more. I mean, I was, I was concerned when those WikiLeaks came out before. Uh, about whether I mean, we the should... State
2: Department cables in yes, 2010.
0: Yes, and um, you know which you're very familiar with. You as, know, I spent I spent are.
2: months of my life going through the 250,000 cables and writing news stories about them. Yeah. And look, they were legitimate news stories in that we got an understanding of State Department activity, but there's no question we were basing this on purloined material. Now, I think it's one thing when the government, because of, the, of an insider, loses control of its material, as it did in the case of the State Department cables, uh, which came ultimately, we didn't know it at the time, from a, a private who was, had access to the computer system and gave it all to WikiLeaks. And even in the case of Snowden, who was another insider who took off with material. What makes the, the, the current case hard Is that um, these came out of the private Gmail account of John Podesta? It caused a lot of pain to his family, to his kids, and it wasn't government agency material. It was, you know, and look, all of us, you know, none of us could survive scrutiny of the snarky things we've said
0: in emails, except. Bob Schieffer, who I'm sure, has no, I mean, nothing, but it's but, true. It's, I it. mean, none of us could. None of us could. Yeah. Oh, uh, and and there are some things that are private. Yeah. And and uh, you know, you your Gmail's full of and if your you medical, to make your them financial, public, yeah. your family issues, whatever. Yeah. Right. And if it doesn't impact on my job, then why should it be part of uh, of the public record? I mean, it's my business, and I, I think we we have to be very very careful about this. And uh, I'm not sure what the answers are yet, but I think it's something we ought to start thinking about more seriously than we have in the past.
2: And, you know, because we're all so fascinated by the Russian story here, rightly so. First time we've had a foreign power significantly enter a U.S. election. And we better figure this out because, you know, it was the Russians this time, but it's the Chinese or the North Koreans or the Iranians or somebody we can't think about in the next presidential cycle. The, this goes to a core question of ch- journalism and privacy. And I think we've all, as news organizations, got to get our heads around it, especially because we're not a regulated profession. So we could agree that the New York Times and CBS and NBC you know, and others are not going to – and ABC are not going to run these and the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. But that doesn't mean they're not going to be widely available on the web. And so then you're sort of willfully – Um, shutting your eyes to something that may turn out to be news.
0: And, you know, I I think one of the things that we sometimes, the public doesn't understand, is that we don't always publish something just because we have it. There are many things uh, that, you know, back when I was covering the Pentagon during the Vietnam War that we didn't publish because it would put people's lives in danger. Uh, And and it's the same uh, with this kind of stuff. But... It's an extremely complicated issue. Uh, That's right. And this is a little
2: different from the national security issues we've discussed before. And look, I published things that the government did not want me to publish on a national security basis. And you've broadcast them. And CSIS has probably run some in reports that have been critical of U.S. government policy. That's one set of questions about how far you go into classified material. This goes more toward personal privacy as well.
1: So there's another issue, and that is I heard this this morning. I pulled into a gas station in Cleveland Park, and I heard a police officer and his friend talking about this very story about the Russian hacks. And police officer said to his friend, "You know, can you believe this? The Russians hacked it." And the fella said back to him, "He said, well, yeah, but you just don't know what to believe anymore." And they're talking about a report in the New York Times. They're talking about a report that is in the mainstream media right now. They're not talking about something that's so-called fake news. We seem to have a situation now where the fake news and real news has become muddied. What do you say to that?
2: Well, I'd be more interested in hearing Bob's views on these than, than my own. But, you know, we've moved away from an era in which You could listen to a Bob Schieffer on CBS or before that Walter Cronkite or whatever and basically take it to the bank because we all had a common fact base. And over time, as our news sources have gotten more and more diversified and more and more partisan and you turn on Fox News if you're a conservative in the evening and you turn on MSNBC if you're a liberal in the evening and you're hearing at times, news that is skewed toward what people assume to be your views, even if sometimes they're not, you begin to erode that common fact base. Wasn't it uh, Moynihan who said, you know, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not all entitled to our own facts? Well, people now feel entitled to their own
0: facts. And we're basing opinion on different facts. We're on different data. We're not, just as you say, all operating from the same database. And and that, I think, has as much to do with the partisan divide uh, where we find ourselves now as, as anything else. And you've seen it now go
2: one more step because we have a president-elect who has said, I fundamentally don't believe what I'm getting from the intelligence agencies. Well, the concept of the intelligence, first of all, let's all stipulate intelligence agencies like news reporters make mistakes, okay? Sure. Iraq, they had it wrong. The Pakistani and Indian nuclear tests, they had it wrong. The Russian nuclear tests in 1949, they had it wrong. Okay, And Bob and I can probably think back to a few stories of ours that we've written over the years. We'd kind of like to call back. But that said, overall, the intelligence agencies are working on a nonpartisan basis to try to give the president and his uh, staff a a fact base to work from, and then say, we're not here while you decide the policy question. We're not into that game. We're here to tell you the facts, even if you don't care to like them because they don't fit your worldview. And now we're hearing people in the intelligence community, and I've had a few of them say this to me as recently as yesterday, say, do I want to go out and risk my life to come up to be able to provide the best assessment of facts, whether it's about Russia or Europe or the Chinese or the North Koreans or the Iranians, for a president who's basically said, I don't care what you come back with. And um, that's why I think that, that uh, President-elect Trump has got some repair work to do with the intelligence community even before he takes office.
1: Well, it's it's certainly an issue that journalists and policymakers are going to be dealing with. What, you know, as of today, uh, it seems just like the news is disaggregated. Opinions around town are disaggregated. What are you hearing today from the Hill, from uh, the Obama administration? W- what's next? Well, at this
2: point on the Russian hack, I think what's happened is there's been enough of a buildup of bipartisan support for serious investigations that it's going to be hard for Mr. Trump to stop those. And frankly, as soon as they are past the Electoral College meeting and voting, my prediction is that they will stop their objections to this concept. Because their only big worry about it is that it suggests that he was illegitimately elected, which I've seen no evidence that this was an illegitimate uh, election. So my guess is once they're past that vote, you're going to begin to see them welcome in some of these or at least not complain about the investigations.
1: And and what happens to um, relationships with Russia, U.S. relationships with
2: Russia? Well, we're headed into a really fascinating moment here because the Republican Party has traditionally, through the Cold War, been the party that has been the most hawkish about first the Soviet Union and then its successor state of Russia. And it's Donald Trump who suggested that we can have a major reset. No problem in trying that. President Obama and Hillary Clinton tried that. Didn't work, but there's no harm in trying. I think the big question is whether he has surrounded himself with people, including the new newly named Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, the uh, chairman and CEO of, uh, of ExxonMobil, whose relationships with the Russians are so deep on a commercial basis that can they turn their heads around to sort of thinking about the national interest? So if you've got a country, whether it's Russia or any other place that's run by uh, a a strongman uh, leadership, that you can say, look, we'd love to have a good economic relationship with you, but we can't do this if your human rights record is like this or if you are arming uh, Assad while he is killing his own people, or you are conducting operations that we believe are promoting terrorism. And that's not just about Russia. You know, it turns out that when there's a lot of oil under the ground, there's usually some kind of dictator or near dictator above ground, not always, but frequently. Uh, And they're controlling the wealth. And it's one set of decisions when you're running ExxonMobil to say, I will strike a deal with this person. It's not the shareholder's job to lecture him or her about human rights. It's another thing when you're coming in as the United States of America.
1: Well, I will say this about Rex Tillerson, who we at CSIS have known for over a decade as one of our board members, one of our trustees here. I, I, you know. Personally, I think he'll be an excellent Secretary of State, and we at CSIS believe he'll be an excellent Secretary of State, because we've seen him um, operate in uh, with complex foreign policy ideas all the time, and we've seen him work in the field of global health, and we've seen that. And so, uh, you know, I think we're, we've got a really terrific pick. I,
2: he could well be, and every time I have heard him, I don't know him well. He knows all the players. He's got a really subtle understanding of the world. And... I would say that of all the candidates who were out there for Secretary of State, he and probably David Petraeus, the former general and former CIA director, were the two who understood exactly what they were facing with the most subtlety. I think the only question that Mr. Tillerson is going to have to overcome is if you've worked in an environment for 41 years where you've been thinking about commercial interests, what does it take to sort of reset yourself – to say, I'm willing to make a foreign policy decision that will hurt our commercial interests.
0: David Sanger, uh, congratulations on a great job of reporting. Uh, that's, to me, what uh, you and your team did on this uh, story is exactly what newspapers can do, and nobody does it better. And you put it in one place, uh, I think you did put together Kind of the basic facts of how this came about and uh, this hack into the DNC, and I think uh, I think we'll all be kind of working off that now uh, in the days ahead. I also say this: I think you're going to have plenty to write about in the coming year. So I yeah. wish you well.
2: Thank you, Bob. It it uh, a compliment like that means. All the more coming from the master of Washington reporting. So I appreciate it. I
0: don't know about that. But for Andrew Schwartz, this is Bob Schieffer. But that's not all, Bob.
1: At the top of this podcast, we gave you just a tease of the great music from my friend Aaron Neville's new record, Apache. Let's hear some more from Aaron Neville.
3: is mighty red Tornadoes, earthquakes and hurricanes Forest fires, mudslides torrential rain Heat waves, floods and blizzards melting of polar ice And if all that's not bad enough Humans just won't play nice There's so much beyond our control With the things we do Surely to take toll. Like people committing suicide just to take unsuspecting innocent lives. Like media's falling from the skies, politicians telling lies. Like Marvin said, oil spilled all over our oceans and our seas. I agree with him for saying, Mercy, mercy me. And want to know what's going on. I'd like to know where the love has gone. All over these united, divided states, there's still so much fear, so much hate. Will we ever get it together on this earth? We're all sisters and brothers. Like Martin said, we better live together as brothers and sisters or die together as fools. Stop filling our hearts with hatred. Breaking all the rules See, We're the high ups on the animal chain Sometimes we just don't use our brains Most animals kill for food Man kills in his neighborhood Nuclear threats all over the land Man wants to annihilate other man Tears to fear, say Everybody wants to rule but it belongs to every woman, man, boy, and girl. See, we all have our right to share this land. It don't just belong to one man. I don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody does. There was a cure for cancer, and a whole lot more love. I'll say a prayer before I go to sleep. And ask God for all our souls to keep. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. A fragile, fragile world That's all we got, y'all I just want to say peace on earth And goodwill to everything and everybody On this one and only planet Yeah, you're right